All right, Andrew. True or false? This is an easy one. True or false? Money cannot buy happiness. That is, uh, that's true. No, actually, it's false, and you know it. Otherwise, you'd be doing agency work. <laughs> Are you trying to get them to never I come back it. on our I show? Love it. Wait a minute. This is, is that the goal? Wait a minute. This is beautiful. <laughs> Condemning authority lawyer with a sense of humor. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> this is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. All right, Infrastructure Junkies, this is what you've been waiting for. This episode is Tales of a Landowner Super Lawyer. Are you an agency representative? Are you a negotiation agent? Are you a relocation agent? Are you an appraiser for the agency? And you want some insight into the other side? We've got it for you today. But first, this episode is brought to you by Pender & Coward, a Virginia Beach-based law firm where my co-host, Dave Arnold, is the CEO. Dave founded Pender & Coward's Eminent Domain Practice Group, our guests today are landowner super lawyers, but Dave and his team exclusively represent condemning authorities. That's right. And today we have with us two enormous landowner super lawyers. We have Andrew Brigham of the Brigham Property Rights Law Firm based in Jacksonville, Florida. Now, Andrew Prince Brigham is a third generation trial lawyer with experience in complex, high profile cases involving real estate of many kinds. He's best known for work throughout Florida representing property or business owners in eminent domain proceedings. His energetic style of practice reflects his view that it is a privilege to protect the civil rights of property ownership and that practice of law is a high professional calling for him. Now listen to this. In 2008, Mr. Brigham was lead counsel in a case where he obtained the largest jury verdict in Florida State Court eminent domain proceedings. And it was in an amount of, get this, $67,410,000 against the Jacksonville I'm Port sorry. Authority. What? You heard that right. Wow. All right. Also with us today is Christian F. Torgrimson. She's from the law firm of Parker Poe. Now, she's also an experienced eminent domain attorney, landowner's side, and she helps her clients navigate the complexities of eminent domain issues and condemnation procedures across Georgia and throughout the Southeast. For more than 20 years, she's represented a wide spectrum of businesses and property owners, as well as governmental entities in the condemnation of private property for public projects, public disputes, and other real estate-related matters. Now, reading down the list of Christian's representative cases negotiated a $4.0 million settlement obtained a $1.7 million jury verdict, secured a $19.5 million settlement, secured a $1 million settlement, obtained $11 million jury verdict, and the list goes on and on. This is what we have in store for you today. We are at the ALICLE Eminent Domain Conference in sunny Scottsdale, Arizona, on site. We sure are. And huge thanks to ALICLE and to planning co-chair Robert Thomas and to Amy Weinberg for generously securing space on location to make these episodes possible. Thanks. Thank you. All right. We're ready to roll. Andrew. Good afternoon. Christian, how are you doing? Hello. Does everybody feel good? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you're in Scottsdale. It's kind of hard to, to feel bad. Okay. What, one place I'd like to start with this is being a fellow eminent domain lawyer although I'm on the other side of the fence from you guys, is you find a lot of people who kind of stumbled into this accidentally. And I'm one of those people, and I'm not going to retell my story again. And Andrew, I know you didn't stumble into eminent domain. So do you want to tell us how you got into this arcane area of law? Well, I think for myself, it, I think most people would assume that I was just born and raised to be an eminent domain lawyer. You mean you weren't? No, that I, not that it? wasn't. No, it's not it. it now, I think what goes against me or what is part of my family history is it was my grandfather in 1950 in Florida that had some of his own property taken. And he was a eminent domain lawyer in a small little town called, and back then it was kind of a small town, but he was, a, he was known as a great trial lawyer. And when the 
Dade County had taken his property. It was his case that went to the Florida Supreme Court and established in Florida that as part of the measure of compensation that Florida pays, that full compensation from our constitution, it includes attorney's fees and costs. And so that was actually a case that my grandfather was the property owner and then was his own counsel. So that, that kind of established the first generation of property eminent domain lawyers. And then my father followed. And uh, really, I think what my dad is well known for is he really made it a uh, focus of his entire practice. So for 50 plus years, there was a firm that my dad had founded and we represent eminent domain clients and it would be exclusively to the property owner side. And, but your dad was the late Toby Brigham, well known in the industry nationally. And as we discussed before this podcast, a true prince of a man. Thank you. And, and prince is the right word. Right. It's a part of the family name. So Prince Brigham, Toby Prince Brigham, and I'm Andrew Prince Brigham. I've been in practice now 30 years. Yeah. And so I had a great foundation and a great head start, but that leaves a lot uh, of room to fail. And just personally, you, when you have that kind of history before you start practice, you need to hit the ground running. Yeah. So yeah. 30 years later, I'm, I'm pleased to represent owners in this area. I really believe that the virtue of owning property and when it is taken to make sure that the measure is a just and fair measure, it's a great endeavor. And it's one that we share. When an owner is represented by a lawyer, certainly the government also needs capable representation. We are all trying to get to a constitutional measure. Very well put. And I, and I happen to agree with you 100%. Christian, how did you stumble into this area of the law? My uh, adventure into eminent domain was part accident, part intent. As a young lawyer in Atlanta, I came to a small, well-known boutique firm that did all types of sophisticated commercial litigation. And one of the partners of that firm was Charles Parsley. And he is a long-term, very well-known eminent domain attorney in Georgia. He wrote the original book on Georgia eminent domain law. He has been referred to as the George Washington of eminent domain law in Georgia. So I felt very fortunate to have the opportunity to work with him. And as I got into my work at the firm, realized how much I enjoyed what he did. And we put together a plan to create a practice group that was focused solely on eminent domain. And that has grown from there. And 20 plus years later, I'm not going to date myself. We are still growing strong. And he has been my long-term law partner and a huge mentor and champion. And I've learned so much from him. And it's just been a great, it's been a great practice. I've loved every minute of it. And to Andy's point, I agree. The constitutional basis for this area of practice is important to remember. There's also a practical side where you are really helping people navigate through a tough process, helping them understand what they can do, what they can't do, what's the best way to get to a solution. And I also enjoy just the ability to learn various kinds of dirt uses, business uses. It helps me be an expert in a many in, in many different ways that I normally wouldn't have exposure to. I'm always fascinated to hear those stories of how we all come to this industry. That's amazing. Well, let me ask you this. Why landowner work? Well, I'll, I'll take the lead on that. I, I think, I don't think there was another choice for me. I mean, <laughs> right. the, the, the DNA is kind of set. And if I went against that, that downstream movement, I, I don't think it would work. But I also had such a, a great foundation. And I think for me, it, I'm a cause-oriented person. Sure. And I really do identify with owners who have their private property taken. I, it wouldn't work so much for me if I, and I tell you what, after so many years of advocacy, there's plenty of folks that work on both sides and they do so mm -hmm. very well. But one of the things that I think is helpful to me in my practice and, and establishing in Florida is very competitive in terms of the business of representing property owners. And because the fees are paid for, I think more private law firms advertise and, mm -hmm. and target right-of-way projects. One of the things that I think distinguishes our firm, and I have right now five lawyers in Jacksonville, Florida, that exclusively represent owners, that we represent only one side. It's difficult for me to contemplate representing an owner on a Tuesday and then uh, swinging around to the courtroom across the building on a Friday and representing the government. I think the world's a circle. Sure. And at some point, you're, you're just going to run into yourself. And yeah. It's helpful to me to kind of have a base philosophy that, that I cling to. 
And I've got to take this moment to give a shout out to my alma mater. I understand that one of your attorneys is a William and Mary law graduate. Is that right? That is that is true. And and William and Mary has established a tremendous program. It's actually partly named after my father. It's the Brigham Canner Property Rights Conference. It's unique in the country. It's the only uh, conference that really it's trying to bring the academy and the practicing attorney together. And they have successfully done it now for some, I think, 18, 19 years. They've established a conference. They hand an award every year to someone either in the academy or the practicing bar that has significantly contributed to property rights. And it, it's a very welcome place for those that are coming to the, the issue and foundation of property from every perspective. But William & Mary has a very special program in that regard. And that that one, it, it's every other year, It's in it'll be in Williamsburg and then somewhere internationally. Is that right? No, actually, it is it is in Williamsburg every year, but they do every so often go internationally. So they, Interesting. they okay. have gone to uh, China and Beijing, and they've also gone to the Hague in, Nether in the Netherlands. Oh, yeah. Okay, so before we, we before we ask this same question of Christian, let me ask you this. Do you have any experience representing the other side? No, I wouldn't know what to do. So, uh, <laughs> Neither and, would I. That's right. And, I. and I'll tell you this, I have great respect for the attorneys that represent condemning authorities. They, their challenges are unique, different than mine. It's eminent domain because of that constitutional foundation at the very heart and soul of it. It's a question of a check and balance. It's a question of the government exercising a power and the power is being exercised by people. And just like our founding fathers found that human nature is in government decisions, it's in private decisions, where do we check and balance? And we are part of something that's very special because in our country, when private property is taken and the government and the individual can't agree, we do have a jury system to decide ultimately what the measure of compensation should be. Excellent answer. Christian, let me ask you, why landowner work? I am probably 95% property owner work and always have been. There have been several clients that I have done work for here and there. And then one longstanding client that I and my team do represent. It is not a Department of Transportation work. I've never represented Department of Transportation. And for me, there, there's a passion there that comes with telling the story of the property owner and what they own, what they use the property for, what their intentions are. And I think that story can get lost in the government procedure. And I think it's important to tell that story because it is very personal. And it's a reminder that government procedures and statutory authority is affecting someone's livelihood, someone's property. And whether that is a sophisticated real estate client or an individual mom and pop owner or an individual residential owner, everyone has a story to tell. And I think it's important to get that across. So I'm very passionate about making sure that story is told. And that's why I love it. And I like the ability to bring that story out to learn, like I said before, what my clients' uses and interests and ownership is and are and bringing that across and making sure that the huge authority that is granted to the government is balanced by that individual picture. Sure. You said something earlier about when you got into this industry that you like the aspect of helping people, right? I'm a relocation agent and I, I work for condemning authority. So I feel like I help people too. Do you think, can we all be on opposite sides of the table and all actually be helping people? Absolutely. I intensely mean this, <laughs> if that's appropriate to say, but we are given an issue, both sides. The private property is needed for public good, a public purpose. It, it is up to us in the acquisition realm to determine what the fair and full price is. And we are coming at it from two different perspectives, two different extremes, if you will. But we have to meet somewhere in the middle. And we have to meet at a place that years down the road, people can look back and be confident that the measure was full and fair. Okay. I want to ask you both. This is my favorite question to ask on this show. Okay. Eminent domain, good or evil? I'm going to say ultimately good. Ooh. Because there are uses for which every single person in our country benefits. There are certain uses that need to be public in order for us all to be able to go to work, go to school, go to church, play softball, soccer, play tennis 
personal interests, there are certain things that need to be for the public. So the idea of eminent domain is good. I think the implementation of it and the use of it can be bad. I won't say evil, but I think there can be bad outcomes and bad uses of it. Yeah. There there is such a negative, at least in my neck of the woods, there is such a negative public perception of eminent domain where people say, oh, you're an eminent domain lawyer. I mean, family members, that's what you do. You're not invited to the Christmas party this year. And then I said, what, do you like sitting in traffic? When you flip the switch, do you want the light to come on? Do you want fresh water in your tap? Then we have to have it. I mean, we have to have it. But I, I think what I'm hearing from you is, Sometimes the administration of the procedure is what really caught. It's not the idea. With some people, it's the idea, but it's the administration of the procedure where we where we hit the most friction. Yes, I think it's hard to look at it as good and evil, black and white, all or nothing. It, it is such a spectrum of gray, and that's where I come from. The property owner side, there's a lot of grays in that story, and I think folks on the right of way side, on the eminent domain side, tend to look at it very black and white. We have this power; we're going to exercise it, and that's that. There's a little bit more to that. So that's where, again, I'm going to circle back to my passion. That's where my passion comes from: is to make sure they see there's more here than just you dropping the hammer of eminent domain authority. That's interesting because from where I sit, I feel like it's black and white on the landowner side. I really do. Like, oh no, you're a you're an eminent domain condemnation attorney or condemnor attorney. Bad. What you guys are doing to my clients, bad. You're putting businesses out of work, putting people out of work, bad. And I, I guess it just depends on which side of the aisle we sit on. Andrew. I started my practice some 30 years ago. And I think early on, I probably, in preparing for jury trial, Dave, I pulled that switch. I, I, I focused a lot of my trial strategy on good and evil, yeah. on here's the government taking this small owner's property. I can't say that it didn't have an effect, but it's shallow. A jury trial typically lasts a week. Mm-hmm. And jurors come in, I believe, when you select a jury in a voir dire process, you're trying to get the, each side, of course, has the opportunity to request the court to strike different jurors if, they're, if they cannot be impartial. At the end of the day, you pick a, a, a jury that really is, is more neutral than the people that initially walked in. In our state, we have 12-member juries. Florida's unique in that Really. Regard. We, we have them for capital crimes when somebody's life yeah. is on the line. We have them for eminent domain when somebody's property is taken. But when a juror comes in there, and, and just if any of uh, your listening audience has been a juror, I, I think most everybody first doesn't want to serve. That's true. Yep. <laughs> That's a great imposition on regular life. But secondly, if you're selected to serve, if you're called to serve, I think most people want to be fair. And yet... When you want to be fair, you still come in with prejudices. You come in with uh, perspective. And Dave, I do think an initial impulse, and maybe this is more strongly felt after Kilo, the Kilo case, it's that government is, is always overplaying the power and taking advantage of the small person. But that's why I like a jury trial. Right. Because you you have to start where people are coming in, but you have a week to, to get them interested in the facts of your case. And, and if you're a government lawyer right from the get-go, you need to be an advocate for eminent domain being a necessary evil, if, if that's a common denominator. But it's about power, and power can be used appropriately. Power needs to be, there's substance, there's procedure. Sometimes it's the amount of money. Sometimes it's the way the condemner authority is acquiring property. It's so important if you're in right that you treat people with dignity and respect, because it will come back if you've done so, even if you disagree, that's very evident to a jury when yeah. the owner's treated well or not. I think you're right. I think, and I think that's where that evil idea comes from on the property owner side, that the government is just this big, bad entity that has no flexibility, doesn't care about the individual or the individual property, and is going to proceed with this authority no matter what, come hell or high water. Now, I think if we can open up more of a dialogue so that property owners feel like they don't have, not necessarily control, but that they have the ability to say, this is what I need. Can you work with me on this schedule? Can you be flexible on when this occurs? Can you help me stay, keep my business open as long as possible rather than, for instance, condemning my property closing my underground storage tanks, I can no longer sell gas. And then you're not building your road for another year and a half. I could have been operating my business in that time frame. So I think some of the application and carrying out of the procedure is where that evil idea comes from. 
Sure. And that kind of situation as a relocation agent happens all the time. Like, why do I have to move if y'all aren't going to do anything for a year? And it's like, there are a whole bunch of steps between you shutting down your gas station and then us clearing the right of way and building a road. There's environmental stuff that there's a whole, it's hard sometimes I think for that to be communicated. And yes, I think that can come into the whole evil thing. This episode of Infrastructure Junkies was made possible by the law firm of Pender and Coward. My good friend, Ross Green, is the chairman of that firm's eminent domain practice group, which represents agencies and condemning authorities exclusively in Virginia and North Carolina. Ross Green and Dave Arnold's practice group has developed a niche in defending inverse condemnation cases, obtaining airport navigation easements, and advising electrical co-ops. Also, you should check out their blog. You can find it at rightofway.law. That's rightofway.law. I want to circle back a little bit. Andrew, you said something about the jury wants to be fair, even if they may be slanted one way or another. I've heard Dave Arnold say that. I've heard other landowner attorneys say that. I've heard other condemning authority attorneys say that. And I think that's really refreshing to think that like, if you've got the right folks in place, like that by and large, a jury wants to get it right. I agree with that. And I think that's really refreshing. I I don't know why as a non-attorney that just, that, that feels right. (laughs) Well, and I think to play into that, the, we have jury instructions and they're not slanted one way or the other. They're the law. And the jury is supposed to make within the confines of what are the parameters that the law provides. And those jury instructions are weighted. They're given weight to the use of the power, but also the fact that it has to be a just result. The thing about a jury trial, too, it, it lasts a week. You can't hide. You know, and, and, and <laughs> right. you know, the, these appraisers that exchange appraisals and, and those men and women that have to get on the witness stand and testify, it, it's tremendous. What appraiser in a bank situation has to go through cross-examination? But what we're getting at is the bedrock. What's the truth? And if you are in the business of negotiating right-of-way, a couple things I would say from the back, backdrop of, of eminent domain trial lawyer, try to have your client give you the authority to really make wise decisions. That's the hardest thing. Yeah. Sometimes your client doesn't let you really get into it and and negotiate. They don't give the right-of-way agent that much latitude, but the agencies that do, and then the right-of-way agents that are really, what I try to say is work from trial backwards, see what's, kick the tires, what's strong evidence, what's weak evidence, what is in one appraisal, what's in the other appraisal. And if if that's done at the front end, it's likely a matter that won't touch or get near to a a jury trial. Fascinating. And let's come to Christian. I think to pick up on what Andy just said, also being open with the information. A lot of property owners feel like the process is so slated against them. It's so highly unfair. They have no control. Understand that. Sometimes information can go a long way. For example, in Georgia, we do not get to receive a copy of the government's appraisal ever. What? I'm sorry. Ever. Would you say that one more time? The government does not share its appraisal with us. And... and (laughs) we, we have in Florida. I'm we, sorry. We, yes. I'm Florida. about to fall out of my chair right yes. now. On Florida, we call it government in the sunshine. So we have public records at the state law that allows us to get almost anything that's connected with the project, the plans, the appraisals. Sure. You go across the state line and in Georgia, Christian can't get anything. It's very different. And it is sometimes pulling teeth. Now, there are individual folks that I work with on a regular basis throughout several projects, and they're very open. They'll give me what they can, but sometimes it takes them going up a higher level and asking for permission. And and I'm talking not only just the appraisal report, but also plan sets, mitigation cost estimates, things that go behind an offer that's made to an owner, and they sit and look at a flat piece of paper and think, how do I know what this is based on? How do I know if this is true, truly a fair offer or just an adequate compensation? So I think opening up that flow of information, at least in Georgia, would go a long way towards evening the conversation. Well, well in, and in Florida too, we, in, in the mid 1990s, landowner attorneys and con- condemnor attorneys, we came together. The DOT in Florida was already required to produce appraisals prior to making an offer and filing a lawsuit. But the other condemning authorities, local governments outside of the DOT were not under that compulsion. The DOT, though, on on business damages, really wasn't able to get private records from the owners who were claiming business damages. 
So the lawyers on the condominor side came to those of us on the owner side and said, why don't we create a pre-suit negotiation statute, which we did in Florida. So it's actually 73.015. I was one of the folks, because I was younger at that time, I was the only one that most of these older attorneys used uh, dictation tape. I had a laptop and that was mm-hmm. special then, but I, I became the scribe for the group <laughs> and we created a pre-litigation negotiation statute and a Christian across the state line has to look at that. But in Florida, before a condemning authority can file eminent domain action, they have to make a written offer. They have to advise the landowner of their statutory rights, including the right to have attorney's fees and costs paid. They have to provide the construction plans. They have to provide the appraisal. Now, that puts a burden on the condemnor, but boy, does it help in the information flow up front. And to get somebody to to say yes to a deal, don't you have to be forthcoming and say, here's the whole basis. The the harder (laughs) part is getting the owners. All the same information. But but, but (laughs) here are condemnors are required to do it. And the harder point is the owner, except for business damages, if making a claim, they have to give records there's not a requirement that the owner give an appraisal until after the suit has been filed. So Uh, if our listeners could see my face and Dave's face right now, our jaws are on the floor with this Georgia thing. I'm still wrapping my head around the fact that Florida will pay attorney's fees. There's a lot going on. This is why I love getting to know people on the national level because those things are very different state to state. And this is really fascinating to me. I will clarify that there are smaller condemning authorities in Georgia that have begun to open up that flow of information and share their appraisal reports. And they will agree in advance. If you have a good relationship with a lawyer, call them up, hey, I'll give you ours if you give me yours. And it is a fair exchange. And with the authority that I do represent, we bring that experience to that representation. So in that way, I think it's helpful to have the property owner experience 20 plus years, bringing it to the authority side that we do work for so that they understand. And I I think it's helped make the process that much more palatable. Sure. I think this is a perfect time to jump into our first over-under push of this episode. Now, Andrew, Christian, you're each going to get one of these. We're going to start with you, Andrew. Okay. We're going to play over under push. And here's how we play this game. Okay. Bring it. Okay. Oh, he's ready. He's (laughs) ready. ready. I'm going to give you three items and it's your job to tell me whether you believe that they are overrated, underrated, or eh, it's just a push. It's aptly rated. And I will tell you, I know you're a landowner, super lawyer. Okay. And we, we're calling you that, not you, but own it. Okay. And that's cool. But this is my game and your opinions could be wrong. I just want to be forthcoming on that. So just bear in mind. I, like, I have uh, I have three daughters. You don't think I play that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Mr. Brigham, are you ready to play over under push? Please. All right. Yours are all music related and also kind of regionally related and Andrew Brigham related. Okay. Number one, I'll give you the, I'll give you the list of three. Then we'll go individually. Number one, Florida, Georgia line. Number two, Tom Petty. And number three, in honor of your middle name and your family's name, the artist formerly known as Prince. Okay. So we're going to go back to number one, Florida, Georgia line. What do you think? Overrated, underrated, or it's a push? I think it's a push. I think they're a great group. And again, being in the South, those are good vibes when they play. You are off to a rough start. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Is that what you call, Kristen? You call that bro country? Yeah. I'm from Texas, so I'm not down with bro country. So you're, you are <laughs> off to a rough start, but th- there is a chance for redemption. All right. Number two, Tom Petty. May he oh, rest in peace, by the way. I'll say this. You, you can't put him high enough. So we're going to say he's underrated because everyone, I'm a Gator. So yeah, he's you know, from Gainesville. He's from Gainesville. He didn't attend the, the university, but of course everybody knows that he at some point was on the groundskeeping crew, but boy, Gainesville at a time in music, we, we had a couple of the former Eagles. We had oh, Tom wow. Petty and they all played, you know, in their garage bands. That's a pretty good vibe. So we definitely like Tom Petty down in Florida. Okay. He's back on top. Give him a round of applause or do we have a good noise? Yeah, I think we do have okay, a good noise. What, right. Your opinion is correct, yeah, Mr. But that Brigham. Just make, that makes me even. So this third one is uh, where all the marbles are. Yeah. So the artist formerly known as Prince. I will tell you, he he was he is not overrated because he was genius in terms he of was. music. And and have we ever known a male singer to get that high of a pitch? Can 
this? <laughs> Dave. Oh, oh my! What you know, just happened? That's right. That was, I, I might break out. That's surprising. That's, if if yeah. the radio audience could see my jaw. <laughs> You know what? You are two for three, All sir. Right. And I will give him a round of applause for All that. Right. Very well done. Purple rain coming down. Purple rain coming down. That's right. You, I'm, I'm going to say you were victorious in the over-under push. So congratulations, Christian. You're coming up later. So I'm just, ready. okay, good luck. Let's, I guess let's get back on topic for a little while. Okay. Next topic, agencies. And you have a DOT, you've got the power company, you have pipelines. Sometimes you have fiber optic are some more difficult than others for you to deal with from where you sit. Yes. Oh, which ones? 100%. Do tell, do tell. I will say that on the whole, DOT can be more difficult to work with because it's power, it's volume of projects, the money, it is well-funded. It just far exceeds any of the other condemning authorities. It is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Now, with that said, on an individual basis, there are good folks that work with DOT and for DOT that I have good relationships with and we're able to get things done. But on the whole, DOT is the more difficult. DOT is the one that sets the rule. No appraisal reports will be exchanged. Wow. Andrew, Andrew any thoughts on that? It's, it's, I would say it's a people-driven thing. So in, in Florida, we have seven DOT districts and depending upon some of those districts have some very experienced legal counsel. They work very well with the administrators. They're very integrated with the right-of-way agents. That's a district that you can sit down and try to negotiate early. But we have other districts that are not that way, not that coordinated. But one thing that I have seen is in at least our DOT in Florida, they don't go outside counsel. They are all DOT employees. The best, after 30 years of practice, I can tell you there are times that I look back and the lawyers and the quality of people on the other side were tremendous. There are other times where that kind of can kind of wane. But I have had more difficulty with the power line and pipeline takings because in part, third party outside counsel are typically paid on an hourly rate and uh, their intentions aren't always to settle a case early. Sometimes it can go for years, but we had the Sable Trail pipeline come in and we literally have gone to the 11th circuit. I mean, we've been in federal court for five years in some cases. Let me examine the other side of that. That's interesting you should say that. And I've heard people tell me, Dave, you're getting paid by the hour. You're just trying to, you're just trying to pad your bills. And my response to that is, Mr. Landowner Lawyer, you're dividing by three. You're not wanting to put any work into this. You're wanting to put as little work as possible into this. And by me holding you to your standards, you're claiming that I'm padding my bills and I'm churning hours. The other side of it is you sign up as many cases as you possibly can, and you're taking it on a contingency fee. So you don't want to do any work because that's where you get a good profit margin. So which one of us is correct here? No, it, go it goes back to, we used to look at the profession of law as a profession, yeah, you know, what, true. where are your morals? Where are your ethics? What is the real reason that you're practicing? And, and for all of us, we have to check and balance the decisions we make within our jobs against the fabric of who we are. Dave, I, there are horror stories on either side. Right. And my, my intention on pointing out to some of the power lines and power lines for folks that are going to outside counsel and having hourly rates, it's it, that is something that it's fair to ask. Is the nature of this small little case something that needs to go on for years of litigation? Fair, fair point. And I tend to agree with that. And the condemning authority attorneys who are representing power lines, they tend to command premium rates and they staff a big team. I, I mean, I know this isn't news to anybody. And that's another good question is, do you see a distinction between, say, DOT, which is largely funded by tax dollars, versus, say, a power company, many of which are publicly traded companies. Is there a difference in approach or philosophy between those two different type of agencies? Yes. And it comes in a couple different ways. One is sometimes the lawyers that will tend to litigate anything to death because they're out to win a trial or win a motion rather than do the right thing and remember that this is a constitutional-based authority that must be carried out in the appropriate manner. And there is a property owner at the end of the day that is entitled to compensation. It's not about winning or losing in the typical sense of litigation. So there's that, the flip side of that coin is there can be more flexibility in being creative and thinking outside the box because they don't have the typical government procedures that they must apply, they must comply with no matter what. 
internal policies even. There's also an opportunity to, on a pro rata basis, receive more compensation. Because when you're dealing with a government, a fully government entity, there's budgets. Everybody knows that it's tax dollars. When it's more of a quasi-governmental entity, which is what I refer to uh, pipelines and utilities as, there's potentially non-government funds that can be used. And it may be a little bit easier to look at a true fair market value number. I kind of differ on that point only because I've seen it it, again. It's a people thing. I I think just like we're trying to check human nature when we talk about this constitutional check and balance, it's, and, and we see it. I mean, the people that we work with, what is the intention of the lawyer? What is the intention of the right of way administrator? What is the intention of the relocation specialist, what is the intention of the right-of-way agent? Are we really trying to get at the bedrock of what do we think is going to make a true value here? We may have different perspectives, but when it comes down to it, and this is why I like the trial aspect of it, if you could get everybody thinking about it like you would in a trial Mm -hmm. early on, how good is that comparable? And you know how it is in eminent domain. We, We typically have large differences in value on issues like highest and best use or severance damages. And when it really boils down to a trial, how strong is the evidence for or against it? And I know this, if, if I want to lose a trial, the surest way of doing it is having an overreaching client. Agree with that, Mr. Brigham. And I think to Andy's excellent point on that, it is if we can get the other side, the government side to see this is what it will look like in front of a jury, Sometimes that's the only leverage to get them to the bargaining table, to get to a reasonable number, a reasonable settlement, is that if it's going to look really bad in front of a jury and they're not going to like it, they're going to punish the government, then they're going to obviously return a bigger verdict. And that can be leverage. And I I agree with Andy. I, I approach these cases from the end of the last day of the case and work backwards. How am I going to put this in front of a jury? What is it going to look like? And try to find that balance. And I think if I come across as overreaching, overly sympathetic to get out your handkerchiefs and cry, jury's not going to like it. But the other side, the government side has to be careful also. They have to appear reasonable and show, hey, look, we have this authority. We're trying to apply it appropriately. And in the end, we owe compensation. I think if that could be the starting point when the right-of-way agent is reviewing an appraisal report and putting together their offer package and getting to the starting point that works, that makes sense, that would help with a lot of resolution. Can you identify any, and I, I know this is, be, this is a generalization, can you identify any typical agency behaviors, what I would call behaviors, that would make the process more difficult or more obstructionist towards a resolution? I can give you one sure. that I've actually experienced directly. And this is unusual. This does not happen a lot, but it is shocking where an agent or two has said, if you don't hire a lawyer, we can get you more money. I'm sorry. Yes. What? <laughs> yes. And it is troubling in many regards. And certainly the idea that if the lawyers get involved, we're just going to cause a bunch of problems rather than from my perspective, I get involved and I help try to clear the problems, help try to facilitate the information and answer the questions from my client that the government can't answer for various reasons. So I would say that relates to the attitude that we're just checking things off the list. We got it. We're going to take this person's property and we really don't care about them. Yeah. I've heard stories about agency personnel being very short, terse, brusque, and those are probably euphemisms for the way they were really acting and just saying, well, take it or leave it, or it's going to council, slamming the car door and spinning their wheels to leave. And I I hope that those are practices of the past. I like to think that they are. A lot of good landowner lawyers have shed a lot of light on those type of practices and made agencies pay for that. But do they still act that way? Do your clients report to you stories like that? Yes. Unfortunately, and it is the idea that I've got all the power. I don't have to answer to you. You have to do what I say to use your adjectives, terse, brusque, slam the door. But again, there's a flip side to that coin where you hear from agents that say, I really tried everything I could. I gave every answer I could, and I just can't get an answer from this property owner. I'm so glad you've been hired to represent them because now I know we'll make some progress. And that is a positive thing to hear as well. 
Do you hear that sound? I do. What's that? Ladies and gentlemen, I think you know what that means. That means that it's time for cross-examination with Dave. Andrew, Christian, are you up for another little game? I like games. Absolutely. Okay. This is called cross-examination with Dave. He's going to ask you each. I may not like this game. Are you you are, you're, I'm going to say <laughs> there's a 98% chance you're not, this isn't going to be your favorite. Well, so, you know what? Uh, <laughs> it's so true. Lawyers, we like asking the questions. Oh, That's yeah. right. Well, Dave's going to be asking We are not very good questions. at giving answers. We're not going to be on the hot seat. Okay. So what's going to happen is Dave is going to ask you each a few questions that we ideally would like to hear an answer in one sentence or less from you. If you do an answer that's longer than one sentence, there will be no punishment, but that's the goal. Are you ready? Are you ready, Andrew? We got to hear that music one more time before we get started. Meow, 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 meow. Andrew, first question to you. Are you ready? I, I'm, I'm not ready, but go ahead. Okay, here it is. <laughs> Andrew, they say that attractive people tend to be more successful in life. How much of your success do you attribute to your looks? 90%, 95%, or all of it? <laughs> it's not much of a range. <laughs> I'm going to go 95. I'm going to take that split the difference. <laughs> Honest answer from a landowner lawyer, yeah. folks. You hear, you heard it here first on Infrastructure Junkies. First time ever. You know what, though, Dave? I had I, I played a lot of basketball after. It was my... It was like my getaway. It was my recess, but I took a lot of elbows. Yeah. And so I, I don't think this is really my face anymore. Uh, <laughs> You've had some work done. I've had some work. I've had some work done. And you inevitably go to these plastic surgeons office and they always have these flowered couches. And then they have all this advertisement for elective surgeries. And then I would go into the, the surgeon and he says, oh, great. A sports industry uh, injury. I like this. <laughs> But I, at some point, all the, the stitching is going to go on. All the seams are going to come out. I think you got a few more years. All right. After that opening salvo, Christian, are you ready? I am. This is a question to a Georgia peach. Christian, they say that people from the deep south tend to be a little bit slow. Do you agree with this or is it just those folks over in Alabama? I think it's just those folks over in Alabama. <laughs> Good answer. I'm First time ever somebody answered a, a cross-examination with Dave and nailed it. <laughs> nailed it. All right. All right. Okay, Andrew, we've touched on this, and you've brought this up a couple times. I understand that in Florida, the condemning authority must pay the landowner's attorney's fees. How high is the, quote, Brigham tax, unquote, in Florida? And is it over 30% of income? <laughs> I tell you what, we have, we have a statute and it has a statutory schedule. So it's a sliding scale, but essentially for the first $250,000 of benefit, it is 33% of the benefit, which is the amount of money that's in a settlement or final judgment beyond the initial offer. And then it slides up for the next $750,000. It's at 25%. And then over a million dollars, it's at uh, 20%. You're making my ears ring. And ha and, and what's the effect on the taxpayer? Like an extra 5% income tax penalty, 10% that goes to your law firm, they, directly to your law well, firm. They've actually, actually, there's been a lot of studies. <laughs> Why don't they just like your legislature just give you money and just cut out all this? The, they've done studies about the effectiveness of paying attorney's fees in Florida. And ultimately they have said it, it, it saves acquisition dollars. Okay. Good answer. Christian, are you ready? I am. Christian, how many Billy Squire posters did you have on your bedroom wall as a teenage girl? And how many do you have on your bedroom wall now? I'll start now. None. What? And move to the past. None. That a girl. I had Duran Duran posters. Whoops. <laughs> but everybody knows that Billy Squire's career crashed when he did that music video. The Rock writing. Me Tonight. Yes. Rock yes. Me Tonight. Yes. Writhing around Awful. like that. Yeah. Awful. Listen, Dave Arnold is a big Billy Squire fan, but I would like to remind all of our listeners that he does not speak for the entire Infrastructure Junkies community. Thank, Thank you. Goodness. Yes, he does. No. <clears throat> all right, Andrew. True or false? This is an easy one. True or false? Money cannot buy happiness. That is, uh, that's true. No, actually it's false and you know it. Otherwise you'd be doing agency work. <laughs> Are you trying to get them to never I come back it. on our I show? Wait a minute. This is, is that the goal? Wait a minute. This is beautiful. A condemning authority lawyer with a sense of humor. <laughs> okay. Wait, was that a 
question? Did you put a question mark at the end of that statement? That was a cross-examination, right? It was a setup. It was a setup. But it's his game. It's his game. All right. All right. Christian, last question goes to you. Here we go. Last but not least, settle for our listeners once and for all. We've been through two seasons. What exactly do the words to the song Sister Christian mean? And I know the answer to this. Actually, have no idea. That makes two of us. I have been called that throughout middle school a painful number of times. I will have it known. I would like this uh, noted on the record that Dave Ronald thought that the words to this song were "put your motor in." That's what it says. No, it says "motor in." We're motor in. Put on. your motor in. I'm an expert okay. because when I was, <laughs> you're an expert. When I was, when oh I, no, 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 on Night Ranger when I was in high school. <laughs> In Florida, they, they ship you. The senior class gets to go to uh, Disney World for the night. And, yeah. and then they pick a few music groups. And, and in my year, Night Ranger and that, that song, Sister Christian, was... So it's not put your motor in and it's not motoring. What does it say? Motoring. See? Uh, and I'm, right. I'm a little embarrassed for you that you actually know that. Hey, Back to the wait, show. Wait, let's, <laughs> let, let's wrap up cross-examination with Dave. Well done, everyone. Are we all still friends? Uh, okay. Oh, thank goodness. Whew. I think I'm sweating. It's getting moist in here. <laughs> Don't say okay. that word. That is the worst word ever. <laughs> it's banned from this show, it actually, and he knows better. List. He knows better. <laughs> hey, let's talk about the secret of eminent domain, though. The what? What is it? The secret of eminent domain. Tell me. Use equals value. That's it? That's the secret? That's, That's the it. secret. We can all go home? This is why it's so important. When we get down to proving the value of something, it's tied to its use. And that owner that has vacant property and says it can be put to this use, this is something I got from my dad. If you want to win the case, okay, and the flip side of this would apply to the condemning authority, okay? But if an owner says, my property is worth X, what is it being used for? And then find somebody that's using similarly situated property for the same thing and ask themselves, what did it sell for? What did it, are they making money? But Likewise, if the owner is overreaching, the condemning authority needs to really focus on finding examples where there is no other property being used in that fashion or where someone's story of getting the property ready is very different from the owner's story. And the sooner that it happens, the sooner that there's the stuff that can be negotiated between sides to get to yes. And I think that can help keep the focus on the property and the property rights rather than something that I've seen more and more, which is attacking the owner. Well, owner, you should have done it this way and you didn't. So we're going to make you look bad in front of the jury. Mm. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like to hear that. But that's what happens in a trial. What's the evidence and how strong is it? How weak is it? And the best example that I've been in part of recently is representing owners in pipeline and power line takings. It's typically the case that the company will pay for the easement and usually pay a percentage of the fee. So we'll pay 85% because those are the sticks in the bundle that we use. And because you get to pay taxes and still use the underlying fee, we'll let you, you know, keep 15%. But what typically is the appraisal is that there's no severance damages on either side. And that's where it's a zero. And how reasonable is that? How practical is that? So what do appraisers do? They go and do the paired sales analysis. They try to find properties, some of which are encumbered by a power line or pipeline and other properties similarly situated that don't have a power line and pi pipeline. What do they sell for? And then they get the, the variance in the prices. Okay. Now in Florida, when Sable Trail came through with this pipeline, they hired three appraisers. They paid the appraisal firms $8.3 million. That's a lot of money to do appraisals. Ooh. And then when she, the appraisers that they hired were very experienced. And many of them had 20 years of experience appraising properties that had been encumbered by pipelines. But as a trial lawyer, when you get into the depositions and the discovery, you find that 20 years of experience has always been on one side. Mm -hmm. It's always been for the company. And in fact, if you go to the industries, it's very hard for any appraiser to be able to find a damage because you're going against the, the downstream movement of water for years on years where there's no damage. But as a trial lawyer, represent owners, take that to trial and let a jury see that. And they get to weigh impartiality and bias, and they get to make a decision based upon evidence. 
Andrew, we had our most successful episode of season two was called Revenge of the Appraisers. And that was actually a sequel to a season one episode where my partner and I, Ross Green, we didn't have an appraiser on the show and we discussed eminent domain appraisals and it offended a bunch of our friends. And essentially what Ross's position is an appraiser is beholden to he or she who signs their check. And he was very brash in that opinion. And that that doesn't go evenly across the board, but I think you make a really good point. You see the exact same appraiser project after project with the same attorneys on the other side of the aisle. But Dave, I I really get at what is their opinion and what is it based on? And yes, the decision on whether somebody's impartial or do they have bias, that's part of a cross-examination. That's part of what a jury can weigh. But what the bedrock is, how good is that evidence? So those paired sales right. studies, you, you get to vet them out into a trial. How strong really are they? Are those true comparisons? Okay. And is, does it strike anybody funny that if you do appraisals for 20 years and you never find a damage, not once, not ever, that means that when you verify those paired sales, no one ever has said something bad about a pipeline. But let me turn this on you. Isn't, doesn't it strike you funny as I see the exact same appraiser showing up in case after case for 15 years in Virginia, and he's never not found a damage? That's Not true. one that, single time? That's true, too. But then what is the evidence? And this is what's great. And this is what I'm trying to encourage in terms of if you're in right-of-way acquisition and you're looking at these appraisals. Get at what the, what's the stronger case? What's the stronger evidence? If you get into those pairings, are they really true pairs? Are you really comparing things that are similar or are they very different on their own for other variables? These are things we ask juries to make decisions on. Why don't we as professionals weigh those things early on? And the hardest part, I think, if you're working for condemning authority, it's getting your client to want you to do that and then to listen to your good opinion of it. That's where, as a trial lawyer, I'm trying to find a right-of-way agent that has that kind of working relationship with their client representative, that administrative person. That goes to your earlier question, Dave, of what can government entities do to make the process better? Yeah. What can they stop doing or what can they do more of? And part of that is looking at that experience and seeing how experienced is the appraiser on both sides of the aisle. And instead of going to the corner of, I'm going to go for the guy that's always doing project appraisals and he's the cheapest one out there and I know I'm going to get him for a bargain. We, oh, God, that's tough. But sometimes we, as agency attorneys, we inherit the appraisers where the, the consultant hired the cheapest person mm-hmm. available. And then we have to go to the expense of hiring a new trial appraiser, which then is going to be used against us. I mean, we're in a hole before we get started, from my perspective. And that's one of the, the things I enjoy about doing the landowner work. It's that we're right from the get-go, right alongside the experts who are doing the valuation we come alongside as lawyers and, and we are there. I'm not writing the appraisal, but I am there at the start. I am there to, it's a mixed question of law and fact. What does the law say about highest and best use? What does the law say about severance damages? It's the working relationship that the lawyer has with the, the, the valuation experts that makes a good opinion. And I recognize on the condemning authority side, they're deprived of that. Typically the, the cake's already been baked and here it is. Yeah. And, and that does a disservice to the professionals that are giving valuation opinions, because if they had the benefit of having a a pre-check with the attorneys, the quality of their work product would be much better. Yeah. Just for the listeners, I think there was either a small mutiny or a a revolution going on outside of this room when when Andrew was giving a great response. I have to ask you one question, and then Kristen wants to move on. The the instance where an appraisal firm was paid over $8 million on one project, I presume you went to trial on one or more of those cases seems to me your cross-examination could be one question, and that is, isn't it true that your company was paid $8.7 million on this one project? And as soon as they say yes, I mean, it's like, I'm done here. And again, that's, of course, getting you a a long way, but the proof is always in the pudding. What's the opinion? And I, it was three appraisal firms, Dave, but also I respect the appraisers on the other side of this. They are hardworking professionals. They had an opinion it had a basis. They did the work. Right. It's not a personal attack against them. It is what's the strength of your opinion based upon the evidence it's presented. All I'm saying is when we have these cases where there's such a swing in value, the sooner that discerning people really look at the basis of the opinion, 
and, and make a decision on how strong or how weak the argument is, the better the process. It's remarkable to me how, I mean, when you think about it, appraisals are like the center of our universe for all of us, for you guys, for me as a relocation agent, like it all comes down to the appraisal. If we always had a great appraisal, relocation would be a breeze. Y'all wouldn't end up in front of a jury. It's like, they nailed it. We're good. Everybody's fine. Isn't it amazing how much stock we have to put into an appraisal? Appraisers like to think that they're the quarterback, the coach, and the well, don't tell them I said front that. office don't, and the don't team don't owner. Don't tell them I said that, but they are kind of. <laughs> no, they're, they're not. Are, listen. <laughs> they're like the, they're the star wide receiver, man. They are not the All coach. All right, fair enough. It's time for over under push again with the lovely Miss Christian. It's time. Are you ready? Uh Sister Christian. (laughs) The lovely Sister Christian. So again, we're going to give you three items and you're going to tell us whether it's overrated, underrated, or eh, it's just a push. It's appropriately rated. Are you ready? Yes. We don't have theme music for this. I don't know why you get theme music and I don't. Do you want me to sing? Yes. Go ahead. No, let's just move on. All right. All right. All right. Yours are, yours are collegiate based. Okay. I'm going to read the list and then we'll go one by one. Number one, the Florida Gators. Number two, oh, spoiler alert. She's grunting and groaning over there. Number two, the South Carolina gang. <laughs> Number three, the Alabama Crimson Tide. Mm. Okay. I think I know what she's going to say. Okay. So let's, can I leave at this part? <laughs> yeah. Just take your headphones off for a minute, Mr. Brigham. You'll be fine. All right. Number one, the Florida Gators. Overrated. Always have been. Andrew just fell out of his chair onto the floor. Overrated. Okay. You don't like orange and blue? Everybody loves orange and blue. Everybody looks better in orange and blue. Literally. Mm -mm. Well done. Number two, South Carolina Gamecocks. She went to Texas Tech. Hey, Andrew, spoiler alert. Christian has two degrees. None of them. Kristen has two degrees. None of them require words. She has two degrees in music. So... Take that for what it's worth. Okay. Texas Tech and Indiana University are fine schools. Thank you very much. And they're not part of this. So a shush. lot of red in those All colors. Right, a lot of red. So Florida Gators. I haven't given my final verdict yet, by the way, Andrew. So hold tight. Number two, the South Carolina Gamecocks. So underrated because we're coming. Oh. Besides women basketball, where are you going to go? <laughs> and your coach played at UVA. Yeah, but we're trading. I See? mean, our recruiting this year, come on. With Shane Beamer, I can't root for you anymore. No more. You (laughs) took Virginia, son of Virginia Tech coach Frank Beamer, and yeah, yeah, you're dead to me. All right. (laughs) What about the Crimson Tide? Oh, thank God they didn't win. Just we're done with them. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you uh, number one and two. I don't you know whatever. Um, Number three, Alabama, overrated, deluxe, and if I never see them in a championship game again, that will be fine with me. A hundred percent agree. I think you did great. I I don't know. I think, yeah, that was a win. I think it won all three. Andy only won two. Give her a round of applause. Give her a round of applause. Well done, Sister Christian. (laughs) All right. We're going to wrap the episode up, and it's been a delightful chat, spirited and delightful, and I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to share any parting thoughts. After the abuse that you've taken taken from Dave today. (laughs) I'm never coming back. I'm going to buy your um, podcast just to shut it down because I can do, I'm a landowner lawyer. I can afford it. Um, You're not, you're not helping our case right now, (laughs) sir. Any thoughts, Christian? I would invite this kind of dialogue between acquisition and landowner representatives more, because I think it, again, it's opening up that flow of information. And to Andy's excellent point earlier, it does come down to people. And if you have a good rapport with the other side, and I say that with quotes, it's going to help get things accomplished and resolved. Yeah, I think we covered a lot of uh, ground. I I think we need to move beyond the simple decision on good and evil, the condemning authority being evil and the property owner being good. I need to give my client good counsel. And good counsel is going to be based upon, okay, what's, again, the strength and the weakness of the data, of the evidence. And the sooner I get my client to look realistically at the value of their own property, that's on my side of the table. I need that to happen early. But on the other side, I need a condemning authority, lawyer, administrator, right of way to look at the data and look with me and help me get to a point that we're doing the the good work of getting to fair or just without having to go through the litigation process. If I can get that done early and create an environment where we're having that type of communication, likely we'll get it done. This has been fascinating for me. I will say, I I think we all have so much to learn from each other. 
And I think Christian, you hit the nail on the head very early on in this episode talking about you're doing this because you're helping people. I'm doing this because I'm helping people. Dave does this because he's helping people. Andrew, you're doing this because you're helping people. And I think we have a lot to learn from each other. And I think when we work together and communicate, everything works better. We just need to help people together. We need to help. And the best results will be the ones where we've actually found a way to do that. I mean, I'm seriously, I'm looking at 30 years of work and there are plenty of trial results that I can look back with, with pride, but far many more settlements where both sides had to come together. And sometimes it's not just splitting the difference. It has to be weighted on what the strength and the weaknesses are. But boy, I will tell you this, there are champions on both sides. And I have clients that, that not only appreciate me, but they appreciate the government attorney, the right-of-way agent, the administrator, when we come together and, and, and get to a decision that we all agree on. I agree with that. The only folks in the room that are having fun in a jury trial are the lawyers. I <laughs> were bred for it, right? Absolutely. So when you get to that point, something has failed and it's, yeah. it's the last resort, but the last resort's happening too often. Yeah. Okay. Thank you both for joining us Thank on Infrastructure you. Junkies. I feel enlightened and listeners, you wanted to hear that side of it. You got it. Thank Until you next time. Thank you. 